I'm going to have us here right at the outset leapfrog from verse 1 to the very last clause of our text because it provides us with a succinct summary of the resolution of Nehemiah's matter. And here's what it said. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. This is the key statement in our text. Nehemiah provides the outcome of the request he set before King Artaxerxes. The king granted them to me. We're going to examine those requests in a moment. And what is fairly obvious from this brief statement is that Nehemiah prevailed with the king because God was gracious to grant him that. And that's what's so poetically and wonderfully and masterfully stated here in that last clause because the good hand of God was upon me. You see, it was due to the grace of God that Nehemiah prevailed with the king. And that's what I want to think about here this morning. uh, That it was the grace of God that Nehemiah prevailed with the king. And that was important because the very requests which Nehemiah set before the king were for the well-being of the church and for the well-being and the building up of the kingdom of God. And so I want to approach our text here this morning from the perspective of learning how to pray so that God will open up providential doors of opportunity unto the blessing and the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want to unfold this in two parts. Prayer for open doors and then straight talk. That's what Nehemiah did before the king. But... You know, it's important to notice the order and sequence of our text because before we get to straight talk, we have lots of praying straight, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what Nehemiah does is he prays very fervently. And we see uh, in verse 11, if we go back into chapter 1, really what seems to have been the substance and content of the prayer that unleashed and unfolded the providential opportunity that is described for us here in terms of Nehemiah's request before the king in chapter 2. And so you can see here in verse 11 of chapter 1, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere in your name. And I want us just to grasp hold of this little tiny point here as we notice that Nehemiah in verse 11 is praying. And and we already, of course, last time noticed that Nehemiah had been praying from verse 5 to verse 10. What I think we could say is we have something of a, a form prayer. Something of a form prayer in our text. Because I believe that was the prayer that Nehemiah was praying in a general way day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month, as he fasted and prayed and sought the Lord's help and guidance for his situation. And as we approach that text, what we said is it's something of a model prayer. It's something like, you could use something like the words of Jesus when he gave the Lord's Prayer to his disciples. He prefaced it with the words, when you pray, pray like this. And the reason is because of how the prayer was framed. It was, it was full of holy adoration of God in the first and opening parts. And then it transitioned from this holy adoration to a confession of a sense and awareness of personal conviction about sin. And being transparent and honest before the Lord and open about sins and failings in the Christian life. And then it moved forward into appeal. 
An appeal is really the heart of that prayer because then after having uh, praised God for the, his glory and after confessing sin, uh, Nehemiah moves to business as it were and he appeals for great things based upon God's redemptive grace. So I think verses 5 through 10 are somewhat general. And now as you come into verse 11, we get to what is specific. And I'll explain why in a moment, uh, why I think this is the specific portion of his prayer. And it may just sort of been tacked onto it eventually. But you know what strikes us here, first of all, when I look at this prayer for open doors, is that it was the prayer of a band of prayer warriors. It was the prayer of a, brand, of a band of prayer warriors. You see here, Nehemiah says, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants. Now we have introduced to us this idea that this is not just Nehemiah praying. We saw that in verse 7, or rather verse 5 of chapter 1. I said, I beseech you. And now as you come into verse 11, what Nehemiah provides for us is a little bit more insight about what's going on. And now he says, it's not just me praying, it is your servants praying. How many are there? We don't know. But it is in the plural. The suggestion is that it's many. Perhaps it was a small multitude, if you can think of that. Who would it be? I think we're at least on good grounds to say that it would have included the people who were in verse 2. This uh, band of devout and resolute uh, Jews who had come from Judah to make a report to Nehemiah about what was going on in Jerusalem. So it would have been Hanani, which is his blood brother. And it says, son of the men from Judah. I think it's reasonable, given the context, to conclude that that's probably who is in this band of, of holy prayer warriors. Did it include other people? Surely it could have. Perhaps there were many people in Susa where Nehemiah was who were devout Jews. Perhaps they were um, enslaved or in servitude as Nehemiah was. And so they may have had a great interest for Jerusalem and for Judah's prosperity, and for the glory of Zion to be restored, but they couldn't go because of providential circumstances in their life. The reality is we don't have a lot of information about them in terms of who they are or what their number was, but we have uh, information about them which is critical because we see their description in terms of their spiritual character in verse 11. Notice he describes them. The prayer of your servants who delight... To revere your name. This is critical information about this band of prayer warriors. Because the very first thing we read about them is that they delight. They take pleasure. This word speaks of the deepest fondness and affection for something. And what they delight in and have an affection of fondness for is critical. It says what they love is to revere the name of the Lord. Now, uh, literally, the word here is fear. They delight in fearing the name of God. Well, when you begin to put it like that, when you package it up like that, you begin to realize that this ought to set off all kinds of lights and bells in our thinking because this phrase about the fear of the name of God is the soul of Old Testament piety. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. To fear the Lord is to trust in God. To fear the Lord is to know God. 
To fear of the Lord is to desire to obey him and to reverently uh, submit to him. And so when you describe this band of prayer warriors as those who not just fear the name of God, but delight in it, you're describing them according to their character. And you know, when you speak of them according to their character like this, you learn something about how they pray. You learn something about how they pray. Because as you come into the New Testament, uh, you read in James chapter 5, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. James speaks to us about how to prevail in prayer with God. And the first thing that he puts the spotlight on is the character. James speaks of the righteous man, the prayer of the righteous man. And by this, we don't want to suggest that this is about self-righteousness or a kind of legalism. Obviously, the, to describe a believer as righteous is to see that somebody's righteous by faith. That's the very first thing we think about. We think about the fact that the only way a, a man can be right with God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't bring anything good to God. In fact, all we bring to God in Christ is our sin. We bring nothing. But when we come to God in confession of our sin and in humility, and we lay hold of the promise of God in Christ that whoever believes in Him shall have everlasting life, and that Christ's righteousness now is my righteousness, I am placed in the category of a righteous person, even if I don't feel like it. But then we remember when we think about that, this righteousness which is ours by faith in Christ, this imputed righteousness, is a righteousness that the Word of God says isn't alone. We seek then to, to work that out in our life. And I, I think that that's a shorthand way of speaking about what we learn of these servants here. People who fear the Lord. That's a righteous man. That's a righteous woman. Somebody who fears the Lord. And these kind of people who are righteous, who fear the Lord, pray a particular way. They pray effectually. That's what James says. They pray effectually. And that word is full of electricity in Greek. It's energetically, passionately, persistently, devotedly, wholeheartedly. And the way this is concluded, James says, that kind of person who prays in that kind of way, well, that prayer accomplishes much. And again, the word accomplished that's used here in the Greek is a word of, of the unfolding of power. So it's a powerful prayer. Well, I, I plug all of this in here to the description of this band of prayer warriors who've joined together with Nehemiah and his prayers to the Lord for kingdom needs. They pray in a powerful and an effectual way because they love God and they love what God loves. People of God, we are already learning from our text about what we need to hear for ourselves today. The way to prevail with God in prayer is to pray effectually. It is to pray clinging to Christ and to His precious blood into his imputed righteousness and to lay our request before God with wholehearted faith. Because that's the kind of prayer that God blesses. Because it glorifies God by seeking from him only what he can provide. 
And so uh, as we think about Nehemiah and this band of prayer warriors, we're already learning about what ought to characterize us and the way we pray. But now uh, we learn about what they prayed. Let's look at the rest of verse 11 here. Uh, We learn right after the description, they delight to revere your name. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, what stands out in the original is something in the Hebrew you'd, you'd stub your toe over when you're reading, which is the day. And, and I think that's, a, that's an important thing to highlight and accent because, again, uh, the prayer beginning in verse 5 is, is sort of a summary of the prayer that had been offered out for months. But all of a sudden, and we don't have access to the information as to why, but it's no longer, Lord, let your will be done. All of a sudden now, it's today, Lord. Right now, I need your power now. Today, they've moved from what is general to what is specific. Today is uh, a day in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That we're going to learn about in a moment. It's, it's that very day. These prayer warriors banded together to seek something very specific from God that He would act upon. And the thing that they ask for is very clear here. And the first is grant success. Now, it should be very obvious to us as we look upon this first portion of the request it zeroes in on a person. Make your servant and grant him. So it singles, uh, it singles out a, a particular person, and obviously according to context, that's, that's Nehemiah. And so we, we realize here that somehow, some way, they've all decided that if their plan for the restoration of the glory of Zion is to come to pass... Well, it's going to revolve around Nehemiah. And perhaps some of them weren't too clear on how that would be. Maybe even Nehemiah in some ways wasn't sure how it would all work out himself. But the reality is, as they were praying and fasting and seeking the mind and the will of the Lord, whether it was Nehemiah who came up with the idea that he would propose it would be him who would go forward, or whether it was the band of holy warriors who said, Nehemiah, this is God's call upon your life. We don't know. But the reality is they've all come to this consensus that if anything is to move forward, if progress is to be made, it will happen through him. And so this is what they pray for. Grant success today. Grant success. And the verb literally means cause the victory. Cause the victory. Make your servant victorious today. The other thing that strikes us here is this phrase, grant him compassion before this man. But now we have another person. (laughs) We had your servant. We had him, which is an obvious reference to Nehemiah. Now we have another person in view. And the the text says this man. Well, in view of context, there's no one else to conclude that this was except for King Artaxerxes one. The king of Persia, the most powerful king in the world in that day. And the prayer was this, 
God move him to compassion for Nehemiah. And you know, um, I'm struck by this because the, the Hebrew word here is mercy. This is a verb that's used with respect to God. And, you know, they, they say, God, would you move this man to have mercy on Nehemiah? But not to exalt him too much. They still call him this man. That's kind of a sleight of hand way to speak about the most powerful person in the world. He's nothing more than this man. And it tells us something important about how God regards kings, even though he has appointed the civil magistrate for the good of society at the end of the day. This is how God regards the rulers of the earth. They are nothing more than men. They're just this man. And so they pray that God would exercise authority and sovereignty upon his heart. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but remember that proverb you learned on your mama's knee, right? Proverbs 21.1. You know, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Well, maybe you didn't learn on your mama's knee. Maybe you waited until you got to second grade or maybe eighth grade civics class if you went to Christian school or whatever. But you learned it at some point that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. And then it goes on to poetically give us a metaphorical understanding of what that means. The king's heart is just like the river channel. And if you've ever stood by the river, one of the things you'll notice is they're never straight. They're always twisting and turning and weaving in and out and backtracking and going all around because they go wherever the force of the water goes. But that image speaks powerfully of how God controls the hearts of even the most powerful men in this age. They're nothing more than just a channel. God can move and shape and, and, and push people in all kinds of directions. And so the acknowledgement on behalf of the band of prayer warriors here is they're not afraid. They fear the Lord. Not our deserves one. And they appeal to God to move that man's soul and his heart, that it would be favorably disposed to Nehemiah. And what makes this all so striking now is position. It's the last word in verse 11. I was the cup bearer of the Lord. I'll never forget this. We were sitting in a rescue mission years ago in New York where we used to serve and they had a Bible study. And I'll never forget the sermon on the cup bearer of the Lord. Everybody in the room said, yeah, the cup bearer of the Lord. They kept shouting back and forth to the preacher. It was a very entertaining uh, uh, sermon, if you will. But it was about this cup bearer of the Lord. But, you know, it, it, it's an exalted position in a sense. Because, you know, to, to bring the wine before the king means you're in the king's presence all the time. That's pretty exalted position, I guess you'd say. And, I, and I'm assuming that if, if you're bringing the wine to the king and you drank it first so that he could look at your eyeballs and see whether you're going to die due to poisoning, you'd probably have a decent relationship with the fellow too, right? Don't you think? His ear would kind of be open to you. But let's not whitewash this too much and spray too much perfume on it. If you're the cupbearer to the king, your life is disposable because you could die. 
Every single day of your life as you bring that wine before the king, if it is sprinkled or, or spiked with, with poison, you're dead. And there's no concern about it because the king is the important one, not the cupbearer. The reality is, Nehemiah is just a slave. He's not royalty. He's a Jew. He's not Persian. You know, he, uh, he's somebody that, though he may have a decent standing before the king in terms of an amicable relationship, he's really just nobody. And that's what makes this prayer all the more staggering now. Because what they're praying is that the most powerful person on earth will make the lowliest person on earth something spectacular. The way they get there is kind of interesting. That brings us into this third sub-point under prayer and open doors. Because now we come to prayer and, and providence. And we have this providential infirmity. You can see the timing of it. You look with me at verse 1 now, chapter 2. It came about in the month of Nizan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. We have the, the timing here. It's a specific day. I told you the prayer verse 11 was today. Now here's your day. The month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. The last time indicator we had, by the way, was back in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year where I was in Susa, the capital, which is four months earlier than this. So we have a timeline that's developed now by these time indicators in our text. and So we know how long they've been praying, and we know what they did when they woke up that morning. All of them hit, hit, hit the ground, and their knee went to the floor, and they began praying and seeking God's will and direction and they were asking God to do something marvelous to give him success to have the king show compassion to him and then all of a sudden the strangest thing happened as you see here in the last portion of verse 1 had not been sad in his presence well this is exceptional because Nehemiah is saying something very significant because he's saying this has never happened before and all of a sudden as I brought that platter with the cups of wine before the king, all of a sudden I was sad. And you know there's a little bit of drama in our text? Because the word sad literally means evil. It can bear the nuance of sadness, but literally the, the first line of denotation on this word is, is evil. And you know, that's the last thing you want to look like when you come before the king, you, you don't want to look a little shady when you're bringing the wine in. You got my, my point, you know? That's not what you do. And um, so here's this providential infirmity and this problem. And, and you know, the king notices as soon as he looks at him. The king said to me, why is your face sad? Though you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Now I want you to look at the very last thing. Then I was very much afraid. Do you know why he was afraid? Because it was a law of the kings of Persia that if somebody expressed gloom and unhappiness in the king's presence, it was the death penalty. You see, the Persian kings had a low estimate of themselves. They just thought they lit up the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
They really did. And so to come before the person who lights up the world with his glory, with sadness and, or evil, depending on how you translate this, well, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. That's why he was afraid. Now, there's some people who like to say, well, this is Nehemiah taking action. Remember, they all prayed, would you have success today? Move uh, the king to compassion towards him. So some people say that Nehemiah sort of drummed up this sad countenance, you know? He said he, he played the role of an actor and he came in there heavy-hearted and bowed down in spirit and just, you know, wore grief on his sleeve, as it were, and the king noticed it. I think I disagree with that. Number one, because I, I can't accuse a man who's so self-evidently not unwise um, to do something so imprudent. After all, if it could kill you, I don't see why that would be a good strategy. Second of all, being a devout Jew, he would have had a full beard covering his whole face. So it's kind of difficult to perceive how the sadness would have been expressed. It could have basically only radiated through his eyes. That's what the king is looking at. And, and I, I believe that providentially, because of the weight of all of this, he's been praying and fasting for months, and then it all culminates in this final day. Now is the day of action. There was something about Nehemiah that he was so overcome and so overwhelmed with a sense of God's hand upon him and the urgency of the situation and the need to restore the glory to Zion that the king, when he looks into his eyes, can see into his heart. And I think that's the way we ought to read this because he diagnoses the problem. Notice he says, why is your face sad though you're not sick? He says, this is nothing but sadness of heart. He looked into his eyes because they bore the stamp of his soul. This is the providence of God opening the doors of opportunity. This wasn't a skillful ruse by Nehemiah. This was exactly what they had prayed for. Move that king to compassion. And then here came the opportunity. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Tactful, right? <laughs> you know, uh, even though the king is asking about his condition, it doesn't change the fact that you're talking to a king. And so he does what you do when you're standing before people of power. You, you say very nice things about them. Oh, king, I want you to live forever. May, may you be blessed. He dresses him as a royal superior. And, and then he um, speaks and presents his claim in, I would say, a very persuasive way. Because I want you to notice what he begins with here. He says, um, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie desolate? You know, the reason why that's such a, a persuasive appeal is because it is an appeal to pity. In the ancient Near East, for the tombs of the fathers to be desecrated was, was um, well, it, it was thought of just the worst kind of thing that could happen. And so even this pagan Persian king would have shared the common ground with Nehemiah's perspective about this is, this is a gross disorder. It's something that has to be rectified immediately. 
No one believed in the disturbance of tombs unless they were tomb raiders, which means they were rebels. And so he does something very critical. He's using wisdom as he engages this king. He says, king, live forever. King, I got a problem. It's the father's tombs. He's not being coy. But then notice as he moves on, verse 4, the king said to me, well, what would you request? And this is really where, you know, you're struck. Because, um, again, this is the most powerful king in all of the earth. And he turns this into an occasion to let Nehemiah ask him of something. And this is that great compassion. This is that great success that they were praying about. Because the word here, request, is seek. What is it that you're trying to do? Basically, it is a way to open the door and grant almost limitless um, appeal or request. What is it that you're seeking? I, I, I have the key to unlock the door for you. All you have to do is ask. And so we see the prayer has been answered. Move forward uh, to see the straight talk after this. But I, I think it's worthy of a, of a moment's um, reflection for us here as we, as we think by way of application, what is it we can learn from this prayer of uh, providential opening of doors. And you know, I think here, people of God, that we need to see that this is all about seeking providential opportunity to, to bless the kingdom of God. And one thing that is clear as you begin to put this prayer in its context and piece together the many details of the text is that these people began praying before they knew what they were going to do. It's quite obvious that the very first thing that Nehemiah thinks of is the glory of God. And he's deeply disturbed as he hears about the walls of the Jerusalem being broken down, the gates being burned with fire. And he says as he heard these words, he sat down, he wept, and he mourned for days because he was overcome with the fact that the glory of God, as I showed you, was lying in the rubble of the ruined stones of Jerusalem. But he began praying not knowing what to do. They all began praying not knowing what God's will was. They all knew there was a problem, but they had no idea of the solution. And so what did they do? They just kept praying over time, and they prayed persuasively and uh, effectually and fervently until finally they come to this day in the month of Nisan, the 20th year, four months later. They finally had a very specific request. And they prayed it with all the boldness and faith they could muster. And there's a commentator who looks at all this and he says, and I think he captures it well. He said, uh, they prayed in a hard-headed way. <laughs> they prayed in a hard-headed way. Not half-hearted, but hard-headed Reminds us this morning, people of God, if there's anything in your life that's really worthy of praying about, it's worth praying about in a hard-headed way. If you have any goal you seek to achieve, if you have any need that is to be supplied, if there's a relationship you long to see mended, a health issue resolved, 
we can think of the weightiest concerns we can think of, but the way you treat those in prayer is that you pray for them in a hard-headed way. That's the accent of the text. And it's not just here. There's this fabulous quote from Isaiah that reinforces the same thing. As Isaiah speaks of this kind of prayer, he says, You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give Him no rest. This is the way to pray. The Word of God says, this is how we pray. Take no rest for yourselves and give Him no rest. We're, I think, too often used to treating prayer with kid gloves. But this takes the gloves off and it says, if it's really significant, if it is about the glory of God and the kingdom of God and the well-being of the church or the people of God or a significant issue in the life of, of the people of God, it's worthy of praying in this way. Give them no rest. Bring those prayers repeatedly before the throne of grace. And pray in a hard-headed way. Because what we say here from the rest of our text is that's the kind of praying that prevails with the Lord. And it was that kind of praying that prevailed with this key. Because you'll remember the heart of the prayer was give this man victory with him and compassion before him. And it was that kind of praying that God used to prevail upon the heart of that king and to turn it whithersoever he would. And so we learn here, people of God, how to prevail with kings, how to prevail with the hardships of life. It's through this kind of hard-headed prayer. And notice now how it uh, moves from prayer to straight talk. And we pick that up in verse 5. And it says here, if it... Please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, and then you have the rest of it, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs. But, you know, there, there's something that got tucked into verse 4 that I think really provides helpful context to approach these requests through. And I wonder if you saw it. It's at the end of verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, you know, uh, what's so interesting about that is uh, it follows up, that comment follows up immediately after the king said to him, what do you request? And it's as if no sooner does the king open his mouth to Nehemiah and say, you tell me what you seek and we're going to supply it, that he began praying in that moment. And, you know, I don't know who coined the term, but it's everywhere now. It's ubiquitous. This is called the arrow prayer. This is called the arrow prayer. It's as if in this moment, Nehemiah did one thing and he, he shot the arrow of his prayer request straight to the throne of grace. It's just like that prayer that um, Jesus said to that man who was so deeply concerned over his uh, child who is demon-possessed and convulsing and no one can cast it out. And he said to them, it doesn't matter all of your many words. Just say, help my unbelief. I think that there's something like that going on here. We've already seen Nehemiah on his knees in prayer, his devotion to God in prayer, and the way he speaks in exaltation, and he speaks with confession, he speaks with, with uh, appeals to grace. But there's also a place for this kind of praying. 
And the place for this kind of praying and this kind of prayer that I'm speaking of is this kind of prayer in the midst of it all. You, you feel the drama of the situation and, and, and you know the, uh, the weight of the situation. It's time to act and it's time to do something. And it's okay in that moment to, to fire off one of these arrow prayers to God and say as, as simply and succinctly as this, Help! You see, I don't think here that Nehemiah, and all of a sudden, in, in dialogue with this king, uh, is, in, is involved in engaging with God in a, a five-minute prayer. You see, the point of the prayer is in that moment to reinforce himself. The most powerful person on the earth gave this, the most unlikely man on earth, the greatest opportunity he could imagine. And he knows that as he sits here in this moment, he must maximize it. But you know, that took a lot of boldness and a lot of courage, as you'll see from the expansiveness of the request, to say what he said. So I think what he's doing here is seeking to make his knees firm. They were probably knocking as he felt the king's power and authority before him. And he didn't want to displease him. And so he shot up the prayer, this arrow, straight to the Lord. And it reminds us of Isaiah 65, 24. It will, call, it will come to pass before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. This is it. While they were still speaking, as he was saying, God, help. Well, here comes the answer. And what unfolds after this are a series of very specific, bold requests. It begins with respect again. If it pleased the king, all that that's very important was the right approach. But you know why he spoke respectfully? Because of the end of verse 5. Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. You know what that is? That is a request for the king to eat his words. It is a request for the king to eat his words. You may not remember this, or perhaps you weren't here for that initial sermon, but it took us over to Ezra chapter 4, and I showed how under Ezra's leadership about 10 years before all of this episode unfolds, he had been leading the people of Jerusalem to build the walls there, and it made some significant progress. But then uh, the enemies of that wall project began to gather around and they sent off a letter to Artaxerxes saying these people are seeking to rebel. That's the, that's the MO of these people. They're known for being uh, rebels against kings in the past. And if they get this wall rebuilt, well, you're going to lose this entire country. And so Artaxerxes did what any sensible and normal and powerful king would do. He wrote back a letter and said, Tom, to stop on a pain of death. That was the royal policy. Nehemiah knows the royal policy. And so no wonder he said here in verse 5 at the outset, well, if it pleased the king. Well, of course it better please the king because the king's got to eat some crow. The king's got to take back his words. He's got to swallow up his old policy. So this is an extremely bold request. He says, reverse your policy and make it clear that you stand with me in the rebuilding of these walls. 
And then there's some talk about a specific time frame here in verse 6. Um, there's going back and forth. I could hardly imagine that the king let him go for 12 years, which was the amount of time he spent in Jerusalem. Probably when Nehemiah first pitched this, he said, I'll get the walls rebuilt and I'll, I'll report back and we'll see what you want. And at any rate, it turned out to be 12 long years that Nehemiah ended up going back to Jerusalem. But there's a couple of things here at the end of the text as we wander away to conclusion here that I want us to, to notice because they show just how thoroughly Nehemiah had prepared for this day and was made ready for it. So look with me now in your Bible to, to verse 7. The first thing he asked for is authoritative letters. He said, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. So it is a letter for safe passage, but more than that, it is a letter which told everybody that he was going to deal with that when he rolled up to Jerusalem, the most powerful king on earth had his back. That's what it was for. It was to say to all the people whom he knew were very powerful and hostile enemies, the royal policy is with me. The king of Persia is behind me. And he dare not take up this mission without the express permission and warrant of this king. And it's highly realistic. And it's one of those things that I think is so important to learn from Nehemiah. is because there's this vast project before him. And as we stated before, the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls isn't just um, a project in architecture of scaling up walls. Those walls symbolize the separation of the people of God from the unholiness of the pagan culture around them. Those walls symbolize the separating of the Jewish people from the races of the earth so that the Messiah who was promised to come through the line of Judah would arrive. So these walls are of monumental importance, we could say, for the kingdom of God. Nehemiah knows what he's doing. He's taking on a, a project of the greatest significance. But what strikes me is he doesn't do it upon a wing and a prayer. He doesn't do it with the righteous resolve of, of a revolutionary. He does it with the thoughtful, wise, and prudent plan of a reformer. Somebody who knows he needs to work with the powers that be in a way that enables him to accomplish his task. I have often been told by people throughout my ministry, just do the right thing and God will bless it. And I love the sound of those words. But that is not an excuse for not planning correctly. That is not an excuse for not handling the most significant and important things in your life with the greatest care and attention they deserve. You follow? Sometimes we excuse our laziness with piety. It's fine when providence thrusts upon you difficulties you could have never anticipated. That's when you do the right thing and trust God will take care of you. But when you're approaching the most significant things in life, you are to do so with wisdom and forethought and prayer and planning. And that's what Nehemiah shows us, to handle it, of course, with prayer. Yes, with all of that. But also in such a way that we're doing it in an orderly, wise way. 
in order that we ensure that we do it in such a way that it secures the Lord's blessing. I remind us this morning of the theme verse of Presbyterianism. Let all things be done decently and in order. He's planned. He's given forethought to what he's doing. And he seeks God to bless it. And of course, we see that the Lord has. The other thing that I see here is interesting is the building materials. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. He wanted that to be drafted so that when he got there, all he had to do when he showed up at the lumber mill was give this to Asaph and say, just keep the two before us coming, brother. Now, if he hadn't have done that and waited till he got there, he might have gotten a tussle with Asaph and it'd be months before the project went going or who knows what would have happened. Could have got sidetracked entirely. The people's hopes could have got dashed all over again and they may have just had no interest in following Nehemiah. But he did everything in such a way that he arranged for the situation to be set up that it might be prepared to succeed. And so these are huge requests that he asks. He asks for the royal approval. He asks for letters. We're going to find out in verse 9 as we come there later on. He asks for a mount of royal soldiers to protect him. In every way, it seems as if he planned in the right way. And I take all of that to mean that when we engage in the most significant things for the glory of God and for the well-being of his church and his kingdom, we need to strive with the greatest wisdom and prudence we can to give care to direct our steps in order that we may frame it in such a way that it succeeds and goes well. So what do we do with our text here this morning? I've entitled it Prevailing with Kings, and I I think I want to use that in our application and conclusion this morning to see how we can use this text for ourselves and our particular situation today. And I think um, one thing that we learn here from this prayer of Nehemiah as he addresses this prayer before the Lord about a pagan king and then he directly deals with a, with a pagan king as he shows us something about how to work under the situation of ungodly rule in order to bring about positive uh, blessing for the church. And I think that's important. As we all know, it's not exactly we're living under a Christian king today. Uh, In in, in fact, I get really tired of of our culture selling us as a secular nation. We're not. We're an atheistic nation. We're an atheistic nation. Any nation that rejects Christ and the word of God is not agnostic nor secular. It's atheistic. It's, It's made a stand against Christ. It's taken a stand against God. It's against the truth. So we need not uh, use euphemisms that cloud up the situation. What we need to do is understand that we're under unrighteous rule. That doesn't mean we don't have an obligation to work with them if we can. It doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to pray for them in order that we might work to bring some measure of sanity uh, to our culture. And I I think about this a lot, and I'm sure you're doing that right now, because as I look across the landscape, I I see all kinds of stuff that's of the the most troubling nature. I I just can't understand why the first... um, executive action of of the recent president was to require that 
our tax dollars fund abortions in foreign countries. I just can't understand it. I, I can't understand the, the dictatorial mandates that are forced upon all kinds of people uh, from, from all walks of life in our country. Many of them have their livelihoods entirely ruined. Some have been cast into jail. I'm troubled by legislation which would criminalize preaching against immoral behavior, which the Word of God condemns. I, I'm troubled by the political establishment forcing uh, transgender people into bathrooms of people they don't share a gender with, and, and, and locker rooms, and all kinds of things that it just you couldn't fathom would ever be the policy of our country just years ago. It's an unrighteous king. But King Artaxerxes was an unrighteous king too. The church still has a role. The church still has a calling. And one of the most powerful, encouraging things we can take away from our text and begin to apply in our lives is the kind of prayer that's modeled here in verse 11. Move the king. Move the heart of those who are in authority that the church may have success with them and the Lord might show them compassion. Move the Lord to prevail upon the hearts of the magistrate that he may turn them whithersoever he will. We should take consolation this morning. This king had devised a policy which was against the church. The ruined walls were not to be rebuilt. The matter of grave spiritual danger was at stake by royal decree. And yet this band of prayer warriors prayed for God to move his heart. There's a lesson in that for us. It was said of John Knox that the Scottish Queen Mary feared his prayers in the 16th century more than she did all of the armies of Egypt. That's what she said. Does the world fear the prayers of the church today? Does the world fear the prayers of the church today? Well, as near as I can tell, I don't think they do. As near as I can tell, I don't think they do. People of God, a text like this teaches us, it's time for us as God's people to be preservative agents, that salt which Jesus Christ called for in the midst of a fallen age, to be salt. And one way we accomplish that unto the blessing of this common culture around us is that we do what this band of prayer warriors do, is appeal, persuade, pray, band together as those who delight in fearing the Lord to give God no rest, to give God no rest, in order that he may work in such a way as to preserve his church from these ungodly measures that are rising up against his kingdom. And that the Lord would be pleased to use those in authority uh, to bow under Christ, to, to legislate in a way that's for his glory and for our good.
And so, people of God, let us cling as we walk away from our text the hope that we have to pray in such a way. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me.